from Blank Rome, you're listening to BR at Work, the labor and employment podcast for in-house counsel and HR executives. We invite you to join us as we explore relevant topics at the intersection of law, business, and current events to help you answer questions, solve problems, defend claims, and attract and retain a talented, engaged workforce. Let's get to work. Hello and welcome to BR at Work, a podcast focused on helping organizations get the most out of their workforces by providing thoughtful, strategic, and compliance strategies. My name is Will Anthony, and I'm a partner in the New York office of Blank Rome and part of our National Labor and Employment Practice Group. Welcome to our podcast, where we want to explore timely workplace issues of interest to in-house counsel, human resources professionals, and executives. While none of this is intended to provide legal advice on your particular issues, we hope that you'll find all the information useful. Of course, what is most important to us is that we address the issues that are on your minds. So we welcome your ideas for topics and your interest in presenting with us, as having that in-house perspective is critical to providing everyone with useful information. So feel free to reach out to me at william.anthony at blankrome.com with your thoughts on topics and your willingness to present with me. Today, I'm joined by my partners in our Philadelphia office, Stephanie Kaplan and Gus Sandstrom. Steph and Gus and I recently presented at our litigation CLE, and we wanted to share some of our thoughts with you on a couple of topics. Today, we're going to discuss discrimination, reasonable accommodation, and specifically some recent developments that have materially impacted the legal landscape for employment discrimination and accommodation laws. So welcome. Steph, welcome, Gus. Well, it's great to be here. Thanks for having us. Yes, you guys sound great. So let's let's start. Uh, COVID nineteen vaccination is clearly a hot button issue across employment law, and that's certainly the case in the world of discrimination and accommodations. So, Gus, we will start with you. Can you give us some insight on the interplay between vaccine related issues, employment discrimination, and reasonable accommodation? Certainly will. And and this is a question that's been discussed for months and likely will be discussed for months to come, even as knock on wood, the latest wave of the pandemic wanes. There are two primary accommodation related issues that come into play, disability and religious accommodation. I think I'll cover disability and then maybe Steph, you can go into religion for us a bit. Sounds good. Disability accommodation is an interesting issue with respect to COVID vaccination, because in the HR world, most of the reasonable accommodation issues that you deal with on a day-to-day basis relate to disability. But in fact, there's not a very big disability accommodation component, at least in the pure legal sense, to COVID vaccination. I saw a study a month or two ago that said, the number of people who may actually have a disability or other condition that affirmatively forecloses getting any one of the three approved COVID vaccinations is something like one in 2 million or one in 3 million. So if you expand that out across even the whole U.S. population, there are probably 40 or 50 people around the country who cannot medically be vaccinated. So, so my guess is it's, it's not one of your employees in that group. The real issue that comes into play on a federal 
ADA basis with disability accommodation relates to temporary conditions. And these are not conditions that would necessarily otherwise get ADA protection. But it's an area where the federal government has come out in guidance, um, state governments have come out in guidance as well, and said it's likely a good thing to do to accommodate people who have certain medical issues for which the recommendation is delaying vaccination. One example is pregnancy. Pregnancy is not a contraindication to vaccination, and that's been established in any one of a number of studies. But many doctors will recommend to pregnant women to delay vaccination until after their pregnancy. Many women who are pregnant, just out of a personal risk evaluation, prefer to delay vaccination until after pregnancy. From a best practices perspective, I uniformly say to clients that the better approach there is not to try and force vaccination. If you have a mandatory vaccination policy to force vaccination on a pregnant woman, because it's an issue that's going to resolve itself in a number of months. If, if that's the issue, it's not that they are not willing to be vaccinated full stop. There's little harm in accommodating the small group of people and giving them a few extra months. The same is true for conditions such as like people who have recently gotten antibody treatments to uh, help with potential uh, symptoms of COVID. The best medical advice is, is that you accommodate people and, and wait until a number of weeks after those treatments are done. Recent COVID infection is also an area where the recommendation is for accommodation. And there, there's little risk as well because recovery from COVID is generally seen as giving someone at least a, a version of temporary immunity for, for, from reinfection. Well, that, that's really, as I said, to bring it full circle, you're so used in the HR and employment world to be talking about disability accommodation. Almost feels weird to say there are not really big disability accommodation issues here, but there still are issues that are important to individuals and where I think a, a bit of compassion and a bit of flexibility from employers who want vaccination goes a long way in maintaining a happy workforce with, with respect to these temporary issues. And look, to be honest, in the current day and age, given how hard it is to hire people and how hard it is to retain people, it seems like a small thing to do to help keep someone who might otherwise be a good employee. The other disability-related issue I wanted to touch on very quickly is relevant to COVID and COVID accommodations, deals with masking. Similarly to vaccination, there really are not that many medical conditions for which the needed reasonable accommodation is one cannot wear a mask. Things like asthma, serious breathing conditions, they can reach a level medically. And I say this with someone who only pretends to be a doctor when I need to for my employment work. There are certain conditions where the reduced airflow from a mask can actually create a medical concern. Once again, studies have shown those are extremely limited. And I think there's a much greater wariness or hesitance with regard to mask accommodations at the workplace 
versus vaccination accommodations, because a mask is a simple thing. I think no matter how we felt about masks coming into the pandemic, we're all more than used to wearing them after almost two years now. I would say there that employers uh, should be very careful in accepting any request for a mask accommodation, because once again, it is very difficult to imagine many situations where it is truly medically necessary for someone not to wear a mask. And even where it is, I think in many workplaces, you have a very strong argument of undue burden, especially where people are in some proximity to each other with respect to the health impacts on the rest of your workforce from allowing one unmasked person to be working with lots of masked people. With that, Steph, what about uh, religious accommodation and how that's been evolving in the world of of the pandemic? Well, what's really interesting about the religious accommodation is before the pandemic, as you correctly pointed out, Gus, the majority of accommodations I feel like HR people were dealing with on a day-to-day basis were medical related. And COVID has sort of turned all of that on its head because in the world of vaccines, where we're seeing a lot more requests for accommodation is under the religious um, accommodation as opposed to the medical accommodation. So that's really a sea change in our practice and in, for HR practitioners compared to what they were historically dealing with, which I think is really interesting. And it's a new challenge. And from that, we're seeing a whole new set of litigation of issues we never really dealt with before. You know, Historically, religious accommodations often related to garb, whether it was a headdress or a kippah, or some similar head covering or other garb that's religious related. Um, And in the world of vaccines, it's, of course, very different. So what HR for the first time is really having to assess on a detailed level is, does the employee have a sincerely held religious belief, practice, or observance? And what's challenging about that is these beliefs are personal. So while we've seen the vast majority of major religions, significant spiritual leaders, including, for example, the Pope, have said unequivocally that they support vaccines and vaccines are not against their religion. But even with that backdrop, individuals can still have a sincerely held personal belief, which is the legal standard that might allow them to at least be considered for an accommodation, which is really a challenge that companies are facing when they were rolling out these vaccine mandates. So then once you determine the sincerely held religious belief, then decide, does that belief truly prohibit vaccination? And then the final step is, even if it does, does that cause an undue hardship to the company? You know, and employers are taking different views about what constitutes an undue hardship. The goal that we've been working with our clients on from the beginning is to be consistent in their process and have an unbiased review. And now we're starting to see that at least some of those cases where religious accommodations were denied is resulting in litigation. I have a client that I support that has business nationwide, and we're starting to see those charges come in, challenging the denial of a religious accommodation to getting a vaccine. And so, Steph, we've been talking a lot about what's going on at the federal level. Are the states weighing in on on these uh, topics? It's a great question. And the answer is yes, they are. And that creates another layer of challenges for companies, particularly ones that operate in more than one jurisdiction. So on top of the federal laws that we were just discussing with the ADA, there's also state protections that exist. 
So for example, some states, in addition to protecting sincerely held religious beliefs, have either adopted laws or regulations or otherwise in their existing laws have protections for things such as moral or philosophical opposition to the vaccine. I've also seen personal conscience. So if you just personally are opposed to the vaccine in certain states, such as North Dakota and Texas, that can be sufficient to require an accommodation. Other states have also protected allowing an opt-out of a vaccine mandate based on COVID antibodies or COVID immunity, which Gus was talking about in the medical context, which can also lead to this complicated patchwork of putting together a federal and state law for companies that operate in multiple jurisdictions. Wow. And Gus, what about the state laws regarding uh, discrimination, accommodation claims uh, for medical conditions? There are not many state laws that speak to medical conditions that are different from what we've covered with respect to, to the federal laws. That being said, it's important to look at the state disability accommodation law generally of the state where your business is located, because there are a number of those state laws that give broader protection to temporary disabilities than has been established under the ADA. So for some of the conditions that we went over earlier, things like pregnancy, things like recovery from COVID or other illness that might be sort of the right thing to do generally to accommodate, there may be an affirmative legal accommodation requirement under state law as well. So that's really reinforcing the best practice. Another really interesting state. And fortunately, from a a legal defense perspective, not a state where many of our clients do business, but Montana has one of the strictest COVID vaccination requirement laws in the country. And it affirmatively prohibits employers from imposing vaccine mandates. And it doesn't matter if someone has a good reason or any reason in Montana require vaccination or take any adverse action against uh, an employee or applicant um, who is not vaccinated. And interestingly enough, I had to look at this the other day for a matter. There's also another part of that Montana law that says you cannot distinguish between vaccinated and unvaccinated employees with respect to mask requirements at the workplace. And there's actually a detailed FAQ on some Montana state website about this, explaining that you can require masks for everyone, but you cannot say if you're vaccinated, you don't need to wear a mask. It's either all or none. And I thought that was interesting only because it seems counterintuitive, but it also shows that when you're getting into the world of these state laws, especially in, in you know, what are called the, the red states where there's a, a greater political opposition to mandating vaccines or masks or whatever else, you need to look at the details of the laws in the state that you're in because the impacts can be much broader or much different than one would rationally think. Well, believe it or not, I did try a case under the Montana Wrongful Discharge and Employment Act years ago, and 
got about eight to 10 trips to Montana in during that time. Beautiful. A, a beautiful, beautiful, a beautiful state. To Absolutely visit. beautiful. <laughs> I hope it wasn't in the winter. It was in the winter. It was in February. So every morning I got to clear off the car and, and schlep through the snow. So anyway, let's change course for a second. Another big issue these days is hybrid and remote work. With many employers now adopting longer term plans to keep employees on hybrid and remote work arrangements and employees having more leverage than ever to negotiate for remote work, how does that shift in where we work impact the discrimination and accommodation landscape? I think one one really interesting thing there, Will, and I think it's something that mostly out of necessity, employers have not thought much about up to this point in the pandemic is that once your employees are working remotely, you have very little control and at times even knowledge over where they actually are working. And when the pandemic first hit, pretty much every state uh, adopted some form of temporary law that dealt with things like presence for purposes of taxation and and corporate presence and all of that. And I mention that because knowing that many employers took the view, we don't really need to worry about whether Stephanie is is working in Florida or or Montana or, or, or wherever else. As these arrangements become longer term or potentially become longer term, as these state laws start to expire because they were temporary, or as state regulators become uh, more interested in looking at these things, it's important to be aware that the laws are going to be different or potentially different in the states where your employees are working remotely than they are or maybe in the state where your business is located. So us working in the, uh, Steph and I in the Philadelphia office, you know, we're, we're very familiar with, with Pennsylvania laws and in advising employees on, on Pennsylvania law or employers on Pennsylvania law. Suddenly though, if your employee is often in Nevada, you need to be familiar with Nevada discrimination law because there's a very reasonable argument that if there is some issue with that employee, It may be governed by the law of Nevada, the state where they are, even if they're reporting in, may occasionally be coming in to wherever your home office is located. And that really makes it important to broaden your horizons if, if if you're in the employment and HR world and really get a good understanding of the full playing field. And also to understand and know where, where your employees are, are, are located. But the issue expands beyond just the laws in in different states. And also to, as people are working remotely, as more meetings and things are done over Zoom or or email or or Teams or whatever else, there's a whole new world of potential discrimination claims that come into play or harassment claims that that come into play. Again, We've lived our lives, most of us have lived our lives in an office setting where you're seeing people face-to-face. Most of what we train people on and educate people on deals with those forms of interactions. 
Now that the virtual interaction is becoming much more prominent, it's a lot easier to control the way you are saying things or for someone to understand the context of how you're saying or doing it when it's face-to-face. When you are remote, when you're virtual, when something is done over the internet, context often gets lost. You know, you may not recognize when you're saying something how it's impacting someone else. And I think it's important to educate and train employees on an awareness and an understanding of the different issues with respect to harassment and discrimination that can come into play, because it's it's a universe where many traditional employers you know, you, you, do you generally train on proper email etiquette? Of course, but there's a level of depth that comes into play now that's far beyond what we traditionally have looked at. And Gus, I would just add to that. I agree with everything you're saying. And I think also in the world of virtual meetings, you're oftentimes inviting people into your home. And what may be in the background, what may someone who may come in, a person, a pet, you know, a companion, And that can lead to a lot of complications where people might not have shared certain personal details that have come into a virtual work meeting. So going along the same lines of what you're saying of context of face-to-face interactions, there's also what's going on in the virtual interactions and what people might be learning or seeing and how that might impact their perception of an employee, potential unconscious biases. It's definitely a unique challenge that COVID has brought to the forefront with virtual and hybrid work. I would just add one other issue that I've been seeing is now that people have been home on a longer term basis, HR is dealing with requests for traditional accommodations, whether it's an ergonomic chair or a keyboard. And what's an employer's obligation there? If they have a workspace for the employee, and the expectation is they're there on a hybrid basis or they're able to be there on a full-time basis, do companies really have to provide a second keyboard for someone's home? Um, And these are challenges that I think employers are facing and going to continue to face as this hybrid reality continues for many companies. It's fascinating. And I do think, as we've always seen, as the workplace evolves, these types of claims evolve. and, And now we're faced with really an endless amount of challenges to think through as they come up or as we can anticipate. So Steph, I have a question on how does today's social justice movements have an impact on discrimination claims in the workplace or do they? That's a great question. And I think the answer is absolutely they do. As you're saying, with new issues that arise, it creates new challenges and things for companies to think through. So first, on the proactive side, we're seeing many companies have new initiatives related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And that's the proactive approach many companies are taking to address social justice concerns. And we're also seeing these issues on the litigation side of our practice. I'll give you an example. I don't know if any of you were following the case from last year against Whole Foods. It was called Frith. It's it's up in Massachusetts. And this case arose shortly after the Black Lives Matter movement really took off and the employees were wearing Black Lives Matter masks. And Whole Foods has a um, neutral dress code policy that prohibited icons on garb you wear in in the workplace. So these individuals were wearing these Black Lives Matter masks in violation of the dress code policy, according to Whole Foods. And accordingly, consistent with the policy, they were disciplined. 
and this matter got litigated. And the determination was made that the employer actions were considered appropriate. And the reason for that's really interesting. So the claim was that the individuals who wore the masks were associating with a cause of racial discrimination. And therefore, they were protected under the statute. And the court said, no, it's not enough to wear a logo to rise to the level of association-based discrimination. So we're not going to allow this claim to proceed. And I think as social justice issues continue at the forefront of people's minds in 2022, we're going to continue to see these nuanced and and, and different types of cases in the association-based discrimination and other contexts that courts are going to have to grapple with and determine where is the line of what could be considered discrimination when it comes to social justice issues. So I think we'll be seeing more of this in the year to come. It's fascinating uh, what's going on in the workplace now. And you guys have provided valuable insights and very practical uh, suggestions for employers. So thank you. Steph and Gus, we always like to close our podcast with uh, some positive thoughts. So can each of you share a positive thought for our listening audience? Sure, I'd be happy to. I think for me, the pandemic has taught us we can't predict or control the future. So it's really critically important to be present in the moment and appreciate the moment. So what does that mean for me? That means listen to the people you're talking to and pay attention. That means appreciate your surroundings and really be present to where you are. So that's my positive thought to leave everyone with today. Love it. Gus? Steph, I think mine actually dovetails nicely with yours. My thought is, remember the importance of maintaining balance. I think as we are all in a more virtual or hybrid world, spending more time in our home office, it's very easy to let home life and work life mix together and overlap and not have a clear boundary like you had when you left the office, got in your car, got on the subway, got on the bus, whatever, and walked home. And I myself have noticed this, that it can be hard to turn things off for a while and just spend time with your family or frankly, spend time with yourself. And from a mental health perspective, it's essential to have that division and to have time where you're not focused on what you're doing at work day to day. And I think it's really important to remember that you need to prioritize yourself and your family because that's part of the key to long-term happiness. That's awesome. Well, thank you uh, both very much. This was great. As always, really enjoy presenting with the two of you. So thank you. And remember, if you have any ideas, thoughts, or would love to uh, participate in one of our podcasts, please reach out to me at william.anthony at blankrome.com. And thank you all again for listening and for all that you're doing for your organizations and its employees. Thank you. We appreciate you joining us for this episode of BR at Work. To continue the conversation with a team of attorneys that understand your business, your needs and priorities, and the unique risks you face, visit us at blankrome.com. The insights and views presented in BR at Work are for general information purposes only and should not be taken as legal advice for any individual case or situation. The information presented is not a substitute for consulting with an attorney, nor does tuning into this podcast constitute an attorney-client relationship of any kind. 